the craziest thing we did, we bought a bunch of cheap IKEA chairs. And on the seat of the chair, we painted like your neighbor could be sitting here. And then we put our logo on the back of the chair. And then in the middle of the night, we went and dropped these chairs off all over campus. We went into some lecture rooms and, you know, pulled regular chairs and put our <laughs> chairs in there. And the idea was just to get people talking, right? It's like, what, what is this chair doing here? And we actually worked pretty well. We got about, I think, two or 3,000 signups in the first two weeks. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Recess, the podcast for aspiring entrepreneurs. Today, we have a very special guest, Dirad Sanka. Um, he's had a successful exit with his B2B SaaS company, is now a successful angel investor. Um, it's kind of funny how we, how we met last week. We were living in the, the Austin Founder House, and all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and I'm like, guys, like someone's here. I look outside, because I didn't know we were expecting visitors, and I thought it was like a door-to-door salesman, and then you open up, and you're like, yeah, I'm actually taking you guys out to dinner. I was like, oh, gosh. But it's good to have you on here. How yeah. have you been? Yeah, great, to, great to be on. Uh, doing well. Awesome. So what's your story with kind of how you started up, decided to start up your, your SaaS company, Loyalty? Yeah, so uh, I was at Intuit at this time. I was waiting. So I, so backtrack one step further. Grew up in India, came here freshman year, went to University of Michigan. So, you know, obviously after graduating, I was on a work visa, needed to get a green card. So worked at some startups, joined Intuit just because that was the easiest way to keep your immigration status safe. And I knew the moment I got my green card, I was going to leave, right? Like that was a, there was no way I was going to spend the rest of my life working at a large company where things just moved very slow. So about a year from when I, you know, had an idea that, hey, I think I'm going to get my green card about a year from now, I started looking at what should, what am I going to do next? And obviously I was going to start something. And so explored a bunch of different business ideas, figured out that I wanted to bootstrap a business. So I needed to find a market where you could generate revenue on cash flow early on. And and given my background in working it into it and familiarity with small business SaaS and the fact that small business SaaS lends itself well to bootstrapping, like that was sort of the obvious sector to look in. And looked at a few different concepts, settled on the one that uh, I ended up building and sold that at the end of 2021. So a little bit different from the, you know, passion and uh, all of those like lessons you get, it was more just like, hey, here's my constraints. And like, what can I build within the, these constraints? So how do you know that you didn't want to work at one of these big companies? And what made you passionate about wanting to start or wanting to start your own, own thing? Yeah, I just usually don't work well with structure. And I also, I have trouble when things move slow, right? So I wanted to work at my pace, not at the company's pace. And big companies just move slower, just how they are, because there's many layers of organization. Every decision has to go through, you know, committee and everybody has to sign off. Uh, I mean, we even had this thing where I think when we were, I don't know if Intuit wants this information out there, but when we were doing our scrum planning, they would tell the engineers to only plan for three hours of coding a day. So you'd basically be expected to code 15 hours a week, right? Wow. For, for a 40 hour job. And when your job is engineering, like what are you doing the other 25 hours, which is you're stuck in meetings or all of that other stuff that, I just thought it was a huge waste of waste of time, right? So for me, it just didn't seem like a place I wanted to be longer term. So it was just a natural fit that I wanted to go and start something on my own. And then what's the reason not not to take venture <clears throat> capital or why why bootstrap? Yeah, so I had started a little bit of angel investing when I was at Intuit, given the amount of massive amount of free time I had. And uh, one of the things I like, you know, noticed that if you raise external capital, you buy yourself a boss again, right? So you now have to generate return for your investors. 
you have to answer to them. Nothing wrong with it. If it makes sense for you, then, and if your business needs it, you should absolutely do that. I figured I didn't want that again. So if I was leaving into it and I wanted my, to operate at my pace, then I wanted the most amount of control over my business and bootstrapping for me was the obvious answer. Uh, but once again, that's a personal fit issue. You know, if you are a founder who you know wants to go for a moonshot and you need to raise the venture capital, go ahead and do it. Gotcha. And so that wasn't your first taste of entrepreneurship. When you were in college, didn't you start Campus Roost? Talk a little bit about that story. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was back in, was it 2008, I think, the summer of 2008? Yeah. So this was right around the time, like, Y Combinator was becoming popular in the Bay Area. And uh, there were, like, I, I'm assuming there's, like, a lot of colleges that were trying to replicate that. And so Michigan, there was a local venture firm that wanted to replicate that. And uh, I was at that time taking a course in entrepreneurship and we pitched you know like part of our work was you had to come up with a business idea business plan pitch it to the class and when we did that our professor told us hey there's this you know yc type thing going on do you guys want to go pitch to them so we went we pitched uh we got selected as like one of three teams that got in and uh they gave us like twenty five thousand dollars for the summer to build this thing which back in 2008 we thought was crazy right yeah and we also learned how valuations work <laughs> so they took like 10 percent of the company and we like we thought we had a, we built a business worth 250 grand, which <laughs> for you know three college kids was sounded pretty amazing. So yeah, we started that. Uh, it was a great learning experience. Um, you know, the company eventually ended in failure for a bunch of reasons we can get into later. The cease and desist story. Talk a little bit about that. That was hilarious. Uh, sure. Uh, this goes back to I think a lot of entrepreneurs have probably heard this. Like you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> so we decided to. I don't know if it was knowingly or unknowingly decided to take that strategy. Uh, my co-founder, Jason, at that time, was he was reading a bunch of books on guerrilla marketing. And we had a small budget, right? I mean, you know, $25,000 is a decent amount of money, but not as if we could go burn a ton of cash. Also, by the way, this is pre-Facebook like Facebook ads and all that stuff, so you didn't really have those growth channels, right? Like, the, like stuff can go viral on social media now. Back then, it was still harder to get, make, that, make that stuff happen. So we were like, okay, what can we do that given our budget, we'll get people talking and help us sign up a bunch of users. So uh, what Campus Roost was, was essentially next door for college campuses. So the idea was you could go in, you could claim your you know, house or your apartment, and then we'd show you who lived around you. They'd all be college students. And then you could get to know your neighbors, throw block parties, whatever. That was sort of the, the idea, right? So what we did is uh, we tried a few different things. The, the craziest thing we did, we bought a bunch of cheap IKEA chairs and on the seat of the chair, we painted, like, your neighbor could be sitting here. And then we put our logo on the back of the chair. And then in the middle of the night, we went and dropped these chairs off all over campus. We went into some lecture rooms and, you know, pulled regular chairs and put our <laughs> chairs in there. And the idea was just to get people talking, right? It's like, what, what is this chair doing here? And we actually worked pretty well. We got about, I think, two or 3,000 signups in the first two weeks, which wow. was pretty solid for back then. Uh, we also, you know, did, did, did the usual flyer-type marketing uh, but we decided to get flyers that were five, six times as big as regular flyers. So when we hung up our flyer, and I think our flyer had four, five words on it, right? It was like a Venn diagram. It was like you, your neighbors, and then like our logo in the intersection area. Mm. Once again, like a mystic kind Brilliant. of thing. Uh, so anyway, we got to a point where I think our marketing got so loud <clears throat> that the university sent us a letter saying, hey, you guys need to cut this out. The other student groups are having trouble <laughs> getting their message out. Uh we even hung some banners in some places I guess we weren't supposed to. Uh, like there was a, 
a bus stop on campus where the, uh, it was a very popular bus stop. So all the buses would go from there. So we hung a banner right across from it. So it was just one of those things where I think we overdid it. And the university called us out and said, hey, you guys got to back off because this is getting a little noisy and distracting, you know, students, obviously, and also making it harder for other student groups to get their message out. That's hilarious. So is that the main reason you didn't continue with that startup? Or what was the what did you learn from that experience? So that wasn't the reason like I so the biggest reason I think the startup ended up failing is we had something on our hands that was working, but we got into this trap where we thought we had to raise more money to make it work. Right instead of just focusing on what was working and building it. So we took some time to just go through other pitch contests, talk to other investors. We wasted a good two, three months doing this. And at the same time, like the usage on our product started to drop, right? So we weren't monitoring that. We weren't trying to make the product more engaging or deliver more value to our users. So eventually we got to a point where we would have to restart the whole business again. And like, you know, we felt like at that point that we had failed and we were better off just you know, winding it down and, and going on. Mm-hmm. So if you went back now with the information you have now today, do you think you could make that business work? And what would you have done differently? P- possibly, yeah. I think the biggest thing we would have done is the, the same thing I would tell any other entrepreneur, right? Like get to know your customers really well or your users really well and cater to what they need. And then look at fundraising as a means to an end, not the goal itself, right? Because I, I do think these days, like, or you know, for the last, especially coming out of this like unicorn era of the last decade, like fundraising is actually celebrated more than actually building a like a product or hitting a revenue milestone, right? Like you get celebrated for raising $200 million at a billion valuation, not getting to $200 million in revenue, which is completely backwards. So that's my advice to, to founders is focus on what you're solving and then worry about the fundraising can make sense. If it makes sense, do it. If it doesn't make sense, mm. you know, don't get caught up in that. Yeah, that's so interesting because I went through a very similar situation where in college, we, me and a few buddies, we created an app and in the first two weeks, we got a thousand downloads and then from there, we were, we were so focused on like long-term strategy that we forgot to push out short-term updates to keep our users satisfied and the active users went down over time. So with this app, what was the business model or how, how was it going to make money? Honestly, we, hadn't, we had some ideas, but we hadn't thought it all the way okay. through. So one idea was actually... We wanted to, we thought we could replace a lot of the, you know, if you're a college student looking to rent an apartment or a house, right? There weren't, so you have Zillow now, apartment.com, whatever. We were trying to do something that was more college centric. So the idea was we would take all this information, right? About what kind of neighborhoods or party neighborhoods, how much are you paying for rent, utilities, all that stuff. And then surface that to students who are going to start looking for their house for next year. And then we could, you know, do some marketing around that, like, you know, get the landlords to either pay us to move their lift listings up so that we had some ideas about what we could do there but we didn't really think that far out i see so around this time didn't you also intern at lehman brothers right around 2007 so so what was was that like it was the year before i started campus roost i interned at lehman brothers in 2007 uh it was my first internship first real work experience uh at like a large you know i had like a job on campus where i was doing either customer support work or actually my very first job was uh was actually washing dishes in the in the cafeteria, but this was the first like real sort of you know corporate uh, job that I had. Uh, I was part of the engineering team, so at that point, and maybe even now, I don't know if this is the case, but the finance kids were treated as like you know the the stars, and the yeah. engineers were like the you know like whatever cheerleaders or bench warmers or whatever it was, right? So I actually didn't even work out of the New York Lehman office; they sent us to the New Jersey one. Gotcha. Uh, so it was a uh, it was an okay experience. Like I, I actually enjoyed living in New York more than I don't think I learned a lot working at Lehman. 
Uh, I the only other thing I learned is everybody is a is a vice president at Lehman. <laughs> they, they they have a lot lot of way too many VPs. I think. Yeah, but you learned a lot about what not to do at Lehman Brothers. <laughs> yeah, I'd so uh, so you, you we didn't have any insight into the financial side. Right, so I have no right. idea. It wasn't until the year later that I was like, oh wow, okay, like, I guess made the right decision by not selling back. <laughs> exactly. So so your your first startup um, it eventually was a quote unquote failure. What what were some of the things you learned or gained from that experience that kind of took you forward into the future? Do you think it? You look back and say like that time was wasted, or what kind of you think about that that first experience? No, definitely not wasted. Uh, You learn a lot of lessons. Uh, One of the best things was to if you want to get into entrepreneurship, you kind of just have to start at some point, right? So you just have to get in the game. You can read all the books, you can listen to all the podcasts, you can follow all the people on you know Twitter or TikTok or whatever. Until you actually do it, you're not going to learn how to do it. So that was the first thing. I'm glad I just got in the game because once I got in the game, I, I, you know, that engaged me, right? I wanted to go back. And even though it failed, I wanted to go back again. Uh, the second thing was just you learn quite a lot of lessons from failures. Like for us, basic lesson that we just talked about, you know, we should have focused more on the product, the market, the user, the customer, and less on things that, you know, like fundraising or, you know, branding or all this other stuff that, of course, matters, but as a means to an end, not as you know the the end goal itself. Interesting. So after that entrepreneurial experience, your next one was basically loyalty, right? And you ended up giving SaaS for bo- uh, bubble tea shops, was it? So how did you end up finding that niche, and what was the whole story behind starting that up and the opportunities you saw? And everyone talks about B two B SaaS like it's the holy grail <laughs> of startups. What yeah. even is B two B SaaS for someone that wouldn't know? So B two B SaaS basically, if you break it down, the acronym is business to business. Software as a service, right? So what that means is, so you're off the B2B, you're the B, that's the first business, and then you're selling to other businesses, and what you're selling them is a software subscription. So that is B2B SaaS. Now, this is a pretty broad <laughs> category, right? right. It, it can range from within the businesses, you have small businesses, medium businesses, enterprise companies, and then on the software side, you know, obviously there's all sorts of industries. There's like marketing tools, and there's security tools, and there's compliance tools, and finance tools. and So the, the possibilities are endless, and there's a lot of companies that will fall under the B2B SaaS bucket. Um, sorry, what was the question? So what exactly was loyalty and how does that fit inside B2B SaaS? What, yeah, what so, yeah, so the way, uh, so loyalty was essentially uh, a lot of small businesses have some sort of you know, rewards program, right? So if you go to a coffee shop or a sandwich place, everyone's seen there, buy 10, get one, get one free punch cards. Uh, the, the physical cards have a bunch of limitations. Uh, what we were trying to do was we wanted to give small business owners a way to engage with their customers and market to them. But we also needed a way for them to collect that information, right? So if you just walk into you know, your local coffee shop and they ask you for your email address for no reason, you're probably not going to give it to them. So what we thought was a good idea was if we got you to sign up for the rewards program using your phone number and your email you know, now you have a reason to give them your contact information, and then you can still opt in or opt out of the marketing, right? So the loyalty program for us was a way to build that customer, you know, database for the small business. And then on top of that, we layered in all the features where they could do, you know, announcements, campaigns, promotions, all those kinds of things. Uh, like one of the things that happened during COVID actually was a lot of small business owners who were our customers were able to text their customers and let them know, hey, you can order online here, right? The store's closed, but if you want to order ahead for pickup or get delivery. So that was actually turned out to be a pretty valuable uh, tool for them, right? To be able to just get the word out. Otherwise, they can 
like post something on social media, but most customers don't follow their local small business so, right, on, on these channels. So <clears throat> if there's no app and there's no physical punch card, say I'm a customer of this bubble tea shop and now it's my fifth time in there. How does how do I prove that it's my fifth time or how does that get recorded? Yeah, so we actually provided the stores with a tablet. right? So it was an iPad. And you would walk in, you would just punch in your phone number. And then it actually pulls up what looks like a a, a digital version of a paper punch card. And the cashier had, so we, we worked with a company called Snowshoe. They had these stamps, uh, like a physical plastic stamp. And each of the stamp was uniquely identifiable by the touchscreen. The way it worked, it, it had like a pattern of, you know, like aluminum pucks at the bottom. And each pattern was unique. So when you tapped it on the screen, we could authenticate that it was actually the cashier for that business giving you a stamp, right? So we didn't have to do any sort of fancy you know, fingerprinting or biometrics or any of that stuff. It was actually, and also it worked exactly like instead of stamping a paper card, you were stamping the iPad screen. So that's how we solved that problem. And the great thing there was when we, whenever we demoed this to a customer, they're like, they got it. They're like, oh, okay. It's like a paper punch card. Got it. Mm-hmm. Easy. So there's no, like our training calls were like 10 to 15 minutes long because it was super easy to <clears throat> walk people through it. Got How it. do you get to this idea? Do you're sitting in a room one day and like, it all comes to you and so the light shining. So I, through my angel investing, I had come across Snowshoe Stamp. Mm-hmm. And I had put it on the corner as like an interesting technology, but I didn't know what to do with it, right? Because mm-hmm. I was like, this is cool. You've got this physical object that can be uniquely identified through a touchscreen. Uh, but I, I didn't know what to do with it at that time. When I eventually you know, got to that loyalty concept, I was like, oh, okay. I know exactly what we can use. Like, let me go talk to the Snowshoe guys and you know, use their tech. And what was getting to that... Um that loyalty program process like? Like how many iterations did it take? How did you find out that was what the customers wanted? How did you do market research? How did that come about? Yeah, so we, uh, I talked to you know, a few customers. Um, I, like the first customer I talked to, I got introduced through, uh, so I just come off like hip surgery at that time. So my physical therapist knew some guy from high school. It was a sandwich shop owner in San Francisco. So we got connected and he was, apparent, he was already using a, a competitive system, a company called Five Stars. So he was actually great to talk to because he was already using a similar software. So I could get from him quite a lot of information about what he liked, what he didn't like, what worked, what didn't work. So that, that and then talking to another couple of his friends, right? That, that's what uh, you know, really started to crystallize the idea for what needed to be built. Interesting. So what were some of the biggest challenges you did face, either in terms of like actually the, the selling process or just other challenges getting this started up? Yeah, I mean, the so... SMB SaaS lends itself well to bootstrapping, but it also is a slow grind. So the biggest challenge was just you had to show up every day, do the work. You know, you have to get each customer one after the other, and it just takes a lot. Like it takes time to like really you know get uh, any sort of like reasonable you know revenue numbers or whatever it mm-hmm. is. So for me, that was I think the biggest challenge was just showing up, doing the grind every single day. So after you basically after you say you sell a bubble tea shop on this, they're convinced by the idea. Do they pay now like a monthly subscription? And once you've set it up for them, how long did that setup process take? I'm assuming not long. And then from there, was it just passive? And now you're on to the next customer? Yeah, pretty much. So the setup, pro- the whole process would be, you know, you do a demo to convince them that they wanted this product. Uh, the setup process could be done in about 15 minutes. So the entire thing for them, let's say like a half an hour to 45 minutes, right? And then after that, yeah, they just pay you monthly. And, and the good thing here is because... It's hard to get rid of a loyalty program, so it was fairly sticky, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the only time we really lost customers were e- either when it wasn't a good fit. For example, like, we, we sold into some, you know, like, uh, clothing stores where people just don't come back often enough for it to make sense. 
But if it was a good fit, the only time we really lost customers was when you know they shut down store or went out of business, right? So it was a pretty sticky product. You onboard them once, and they just kind of stick with you for for a while. Gotcha. Like I still had customers that I signed up myself who were still with us six years later when I sold the company. I see. Okay, so you you went to Michigan, you graduate, and then you're in San Francisco when you're selling this B2B SaaS to customers, right? Yep. So why why San Francisco? Was there a special reason to be? in that location? Yeah, so right out of college, I worked for another small uh, company in Ann Arbor. Um, and it was just actually the two founders, and I was num- employee number one over there. Uh, and so the, it was actually the founder, and then the second founder was his mom, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> and uh, after the first year, they both decided to to move. I think he moved to San Diego, and then his mom moved somewhere in the East Coast, forget where. So I got to a point where I was the only one left in the Ann Arbor office, and most of my friends had graduated and left. So I was just like, okay, well, but, and I can work from anywhere now, right? Because if there is no central location for the team. So I just started looking around and saying, okay, where do I want to go? And given that a lot of, I went to Michigan for computer science engineering, a lot of my friends ended up in the Bay Area. So that was why I ended up there. Got I was like, okay, let me just go where I know people, and you know, I'll figure it out from there. And how do you think that translated into building your business um, do you think there was any large benefit to being in a place like San Francisco? I, there definitely was. I think so. A lot of the stuff. Uh, I don't know if you have you guys heard the Steve Jobs like commencement speech yeah. at Stanford. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those examples of like it made sense connecting the dots backwards. Yeah. But like I didn't. This wasn't like a master plan where I was like oh, I'm going to go to the Bay Area and like learn startups and like build my own company. It was more I went where I thought it made sense, and then like from there the next step sort of revealed itself and. You know, just kind of take the next step and, and see where it goes. So I don't want to come across as if like this was a whole planned thing. <laughs> and I, I knew this when I was like 22, that exactly what was going to happen. Mm. But it was definitely helpful um, for me. So I worked at the company uh, out of Ann Arbor, which was like a three-person team. I went to a couple of small startups after that, like, you know, Series A type companies. Uh, and then so learned some, uh, you know, lessons there and then went to, into it, while it was slow moving, there were some benefits, which is you actually saw how a well-oiled machine works, right? So while, while it does move slow, you actually see how, especially for SaaS, right? Because there's so many different elements to, to SaaS. You have, obviously, the product, the engineering, then you got the marketing, sales, then you got customer success, support. Just seeing how all these different functions worked and how they interact with each other, I think was really valuable for me. When I started my own company, I sort of already knew what to look mm. for what to avoid, those kinds of things. And how did you learn while you were at these companies? What were some of the things you, you did, best practices, in order to like take away the most you could? So for me, I actually moved from an engineering to a product management role, which I was super beneficial because the good news with product managers is you work across the, all, all teams, right? It's a cross-functional role. So that's how I got uh, you know, to work with all these different functions and learn from them. So that I think that switch was was uh, hugely beneficial. But I'm also glad I went through the engineering thing because then I knew I could also build. Uh, so when I started, the company was just me, right? So I built and sold the software. So that it was nice to be able to do both. I think so. Uh, you know, I, if you can do both, I'd say yeah. Like I think yeah. that'd, be, that'd be worthwhile. That was a beautiful quote you brought up for context. Um, that Steve Jobs quote is: um, "You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you just have to have this like blind faith and optimism yeah. that everything's going to work out." So at what point on that journey were you like, uh, how long did you have the company before you sold it? And what made you decide that you want to actually sell it? Yeah. 
So actually, just to add, it's, so it's not necessarily just blind faith and optimism. I think at every time you, you sort of have to take the decision that seems most relevant or most interesting at the time. Yeah. So the idea isn't here to leave everything up to chance, but also it's not that you have this master plan that you're, you're working on, right? Uh, in terms of, yeah, what, so I was at that with the company for six years. I wasn't necessarily looking to sell it. It just so happened that, uh, so the, I, I mentioned the stamp company, right? Yeah. So they got a new CEO after COVID and I started talking to him because, you know, we were one of his largest customers. And during the conversation, it came up that he was interested in entering the same market that we were already in. And that's where we started to entertain the idea of, does it make sense to essentially, you know, for you guys to acquire us, right? So that's how the conversation started. Uh, he went to his board, got approved. The whole deal probably moved in three months, which is oh. pretty fast for, for an acquisition. I was relatively pain-free compared to, you know, I've had other friends who've gone through acquisitions where it took them like months, if not a year, mm -hmm. to, to get the deal over the line. Uh, and then the other benefit was I didn't need to stick around also. They just wanted me around for three to four months to transition and then I could move on. This wasn't one of those acquisitions where I'd have to be there for typically two years, right? That's sort of what yeah. they lock you up for. So yeah, that was the other reason where, you know, I probably could have, if I went gone on the open market, got on a slightly higher price or for the yeah. company, but I optimized for, Maybe I'll go figure out what to do next. How many clients did you have at the time when you were selling it? Uh, so I, I don't remember exactly where we were. I think pre-COVID, we were about 800 or 850 stores Wow! In, across the country. We lost about 25%. So if you do the math, maybe 600. Yeah. And so it was about like $100 per client? Yeah, per roughly. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, we had some earlier customers who were paying lesser. And then we had a couple of franchise customers who had 50 stores who were you know, given a discount. So, so what was next? Because you didn't have to stay at this company, and from there, now you sold it. Where, where to next? Yeah, so uh, before I sold, so I sold the company at the end of 2021. The conversation for the sale didn't even start till June, maybe, of okay. 21. But while I was running the business through COVID, uh, obviously when COVID hit, I ended up downsizing my team significantly, mainly because at, in March 2020, it wasn't clear how long the lockdowns were going to last, like what was going to happen. So I brought the team down to like the bare minimum required just to keep the lights on. Um, so it was just me and two contractors for, for a long time. So a year later, basically, you know, early 2021, what I started noticing was obviously the worst case scenario didn't happen. I didn't, there was a moment I was like, okay, I need to plan for all my businesses, like, you know, dying and my business going to zero, right? So that was the worst case scenario I was planning for. Luckily, it did not happen. Um, but as I was running the business over the, the year, I noticed that, okay, I'd reduced a lot of the headcount. All of a sudden, my business was generating a lot of cash flow, right? And I don't want to call it passive because you put in five, six years to build a product there. Right. But it was generating a ton of cash from minimal effort in that one-year window, right? So that got me thinking, like, hey, there's got to be other businesses like this, right? Which are not venture scale necessarily, but that probably generate, you know, let's say six figures or high six figures a year in cash flow. So I reached out to a friend of mine from, who also I met at Intuit, uh, who's currently my co-founder, and we explored this idea. I was like, hey, can we buy businesses like this? Like, can we just build like a cash flow machine, right? Uh, like, you know, some people, I know Jacob is in real estate, so like real estate's one example of building those kinds of businesses, but we were like, okay, let's just look across the spectrum and see what, what we want to get into. So early 2021, we established a company, like a holding company to go acquire like some businesses, right? And we ended up eventually settling on buying you know, content sites and blogs that were under-optimized for SEO. Uh, my co-founder, Adam, is well-experienced in that space, so we figured that was a good way to match, you know, his strengths with uh, with the market that was right in front of us. So this 
was already in motion before my exit happened. Uh, so once the exit happened, I start, started spending a little bit more time on you know this website business. And then I think towards the end of 2021, I randomly stumbled across, like, we're going to go back to the Steve Jobs quote, right? Like, these are all connected out backward things. Uh, I stumbled across a, a YouTuber uh, who was doing, like, Airbnb, uh, you know, businesses, right? And it fit the, the mold of what I was looking for, like, cash flowing businesses. So I reached out to him. Uh, we started working together. So that got me into my second business, which is uh, we now own a motel in upstate New York. Uh, and we're trying to, you know, make it up a boutique motel from like what it was, was a pretty old motel is like at least 30, 40 years old. So we're kind of taking that over, refurbishing it and building that into another business. So yeah, these are two businesses that I got into, uh, you know, during or right about the time of the exit. Right. So it wasn't, once again, wasn't fully planned. It was just what I thought, thought at that time made sense. And I went after that. And, Early 2022, I got back into angel investing, also random again. Uh, there's this uh, company called OnDeck. I don't know if pe- some people might be familiar with it. Uh, they had an angel investing program. I would randomly landed on their website, and I ended up digging in more because I, one of my college friends, like his picture was <laughs> like above <laughs> the fold. So I looked at it. I was like, hey, wait, what's Brian doing here? Yeah. So that's why I actually looked into it. I was like, okay, like, let me apply then, right? Because I had angel invest in the past. I wasn't necessarily planning to go back into it, but this was another one where I was like, okay, sure, like might be worthwhile, like, you know, restarting that, right? So yeah, that's sort of how, you know, I got into the, got back into the angel investing game. Got it. So are you still working on those two businesses, like the SEO optimization and uh, short-term rentals or the Airbnb and angel investing on the side as well, or just angel investing now? Uh, Yeah. So I still have both those businesses. Uh, angel investing on the side, and I also recently started an angel investing group. Okay. Uh, where so, you know, we got about twenty twenty five members in there, mostly my first and second degree connections, and we just invest together as a group. Right? W- was your hypothesis true that like you wanted to get into these businesses that cash flow with relatively passive work after you do the initial work? Has that proven true that you don't have to do much work with those? Uh, it's not as passive as you think it would be, but it's it's definitely not where it was with my SaaS business, right? Which was more of a you know. 80, 90 hour work week type thing. These are more, you know, 10 to 15 hours, right? What are, so, the, what are the economics of a blog? It's actually not bad, right? So the, the big risk you have to keep in mind is uh, you're always like one Google update away from your traffic potentially getting wrecked. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like risk-free in that sense. <laughs> right. But you can typically buy these blogs for like between three to four times trailing 12-month earnings, right? So... In theory, if everything stays exactly the same, your like cash on cash return is like twenty five percent to thirty three percent, which is not bad at all. Right. Um, but as I said, like it never works out like that in theory, right? Like you will buy it and there will be fluctuations, and like we've had some months where things have gotten really good, and the other months where, you know, they they get bad. Even even if it's not Google, they, there's variation in like ad rates and affiliate commissions and all those things. So. I think the best way if you're planning to go into that sector is to same thing diversify, right? Like you shouldn't own like just one side, maybe you buy 10 or over time, obviously. And that's how you can sort of blunt out some of those. Are there certain niches that you try to stay mostly into? Are they like blogs do you at least have some knowledge about or is it like super random ones you've never Yeah, definitely want to stay in areas where we have some knowledge of. Uh, But we don't, we're not like super restricted to like a specific segment, right? So there's some that we avoid, for example... Uh, there's a lot of like food and fitness blogs. 
and there's this like hundreds of thousands of them, right? So we just stay away from that sector mainly because it's super competitive. Uh, so we we try to find like niches where we can compete relatively with lesser effort. So how does this work? Like walk through the process of you now have some money and you're like, okay, we want to invest in a new blog. Where do you find these and what does under-optimized mean? What do you actually do yeah, to optimize so them? There's, so in terms of where you find these, there's a, a bunch of brokerage sites, right? So uh, like Flippa, Empire Flippers, Quiet Light. You can just go online and you know search for small business uh, brokerage sites or something and you'll get a, a ton of results. So we sort of just look through these. Uh, what we mean by under-optimized is essentially, I will leave the SEO piece up to my co-founder because he understands it better. So it could be simple things like, hey, this site hasn't been updated in a year and a half, right? So if we just hired some writers, started outputting content, it just started moving up. Or things like, hey, their, you know, their link building structure isn't quite right. We know how we can fix it. Sometimes it's something super basic. Uh, like one of the sites we bought that the owner never ran ads on it. Wow. So we're like, okay, just turn on ads. Perfect. That's like, you know, extra revenue, right? And that's all, not always going to be that straightforward, but it, there's a varying range of, you know, what we mean by under-optimized, right? So it could be anything from like technical SEO stuff all the way down to just, you know, not having the right monetization channels in place. What does kind of your average blog look like? How many like page views does it have? Like how many people are going on it every day or month? It, it varies. Like the ones we buy, typically 2,000 visitors a day, right? So that's the price range we operate in. But you can find... Like my co-founder Adam built a, a massive blog and sold it for, you know, several million dollars. So you can, they can go all the way from like small hobby like sites all the way to, you know, like actual media publications, right? And what are some of the, some of the niches or things that can grow like to that size? Are there certain ones that grow better than others? Like I know you said there's a lot of competition in certain spaces. Yeah. Uh, so I think personal finance is a pretty popular category these days. Um and then for the ones to grow that big, like obviously you have to be talking about a topic that applies to a lot of people, right? So if you have like a super niche interest in something, then it's probably going to be a hobby, hobbyist site, which is totally fine. But if you want something to get to like millions of visitors, you probably need to find a topic or a sector that has that level of uh, market size. And how does it work hiring content creators for these blogs? Like do you pay people per article? How do you, yeah. And how do you find these people? Yeah, so we, we pay them per article, uh, usually Upwork and Fiverr are the two places where you find them. And the way we usually just, you know, give them like a, a batch of articles and if it were it, that's sort of their job interview and if they do a good job then we'll we'll bring them on. So it's fairly straightforward. Like that's part's not super complicated. What's the barrier to entry for a business like this? Like how much expertise do you actually need to get started? I assume you don't want more competition and telling our whole audience of how you exactly no. do it, but There's in general. Plenty of web traffic to go around, so I'm not super concerned. <laughs> uh, the one thing I, I would you probably want to have a good knowledge of SEO if you're going to get into, into the space, right? Because you will be competing with people like my co-founder, Adam, who knows SEO really well, because you have to get your site to rank against all these other people, right? So you probably want to start building. Uh, and the good thing with SEO is there's plenty of resources online that you could just go between YouTube and Google, like learn if you want. But that's where I would start. Uh, the other thing, as always, start by doing. So if, instead of going and buying a site, maybe just buy a domain for you know $10, start building it, right? Start writing content, uh, start learning how to get it to rank. And once you feel like you've figured that out, then maybe you want to go out and, you know, like buy a business, right? So it's it's the same thing, like start small and then if it's working, then scale it up. And your SEO is basically like how high you are on Google if someone searches up like a... Yeah, for a certain term, right? Like so right, if you're writing about like wrestling or something and someone right. search up wrestling is how high you'd be on the, the search bar? Yeah, exa exactly. Yeah. And the higher you are, the more like organic 
traffic yep. you'll get basically if you're on the top three positions like you get significantly more traffic than if you're in like the you know, four and onwards <laughs> yeah no, it's like a power law distribution right so it drops off very quickly from mm-hmm. like top three and then by the time you're on page two like no you get almost yeah nobody clicks on wow so talk a little bit about your now angel investing how do you actually figure out what kinds of companies you want to invest in what are some of your criteria or factors when you're looking into that sure uh so i invest like really early like so the pre-seed stage and what I'm usually looking for, the, the biggest thing for me is betting on the founder and the founding team, right? So what I'm looking for, first and foremost, is what I call founder market fit. So how strong is the founder on the founding team? How well can they execute on their, on their vision? And how well do they know the market? So that's usually like my biggest criteria. The second thing I always look for is, uh, will this scale, right? So once we assume the founder market fit is there, the next question is, okay, is this business going to scale? And, and the reason for that is the way angel investing works is 90 to 95% of the companies you invest in are basically going to go to zero, right? And that's just the nature of the game. So your remaining 5% have to produce like really big returns for you to have a reasonable you know, financial outcome from that. So you, the second piece is, will it scale? So can this become like a billion-dollar company or a $10 billion company, right? And there you're looking for things have changed a bit in the last couple of years, right? So if you were fundraising back in 2016, 2017, you could easily raise tens of millions of dollars. Now it's kind of hard to do that with without significant traction, right? So we're now having to look for businesses that actually have the ability to scale. For a while, it looked like SaaS was, or small business SaaS could scale, but that was because you could raise $50 million, go hire 300 salespeople and grow. That is probably not likely anymore. So you may have to start looking for businesses where the business model itself has the ability to scale. So if only 5% of your portfolio is assumed to be have some type of value in however many years, how do you get diversification among, like how many companies do you have to invest into? How does that work? Yeah, it's, I, there's studies out there. I think I'd recommend people looking at that. But it's uh, somewhere around 30 companies, right? I think you want to have a, a broad enough portfolio where you'll have a chance of having at least one or two like runaway successes. And But the one thing, this is assuming you have decent deal flow, like, you could have a situation where you invest in 30 companies and they all and go they zero. And they all suck, yeah. There's a very realistic chance. So if people want to get into angel investing, I would recommend them to do it not just for the financial aspect because there are other asset classes where you can make money with less risk. I think you should do it if you really enjoy working with, with founders and working with startups, right? So that's one of the reasons I do it is it keeps me engaged. Uh, now that my businesses are less startup-y and more small business, uh, this helps me stay engaged with with founders and the startup market. So you need roughly thirty investments. Um, how big of a deal size? Like, how big of a check do you usually write? Like, how much? You started. You said angel investing when you're into it. Yeah. So how big of a portfolio do you have to have to like reasonably say like I can angel invest now? I mean, you won't know for a while, right? So if this business works, it's going to take you ten years to figure out like how big the outcome is. Uh, and angel investing is almost, it's almost reverse, right? You, all your mistakes are piled up early. So all the companies that are going to die will die in the first two years. So all you see is failure for the first couple of years. Right. And you have to be able to push through that to, to really like stick with it. Um, so yeah, it'll take about 10 years for you to see any sort of like reasonable, you know, like returns. I've, I have like, you know, a few companies in my portfolio that are still around from 10 years ago, but even now I'm not ready to claim that like I have angel investing figured out. I'm still figuring it out. Mm, interesting. So say there's there's you who is an angel investor and say there's someone else who has the same amount of money to invest. Do you have special access to companies because of your part of some 
network or organization that other people of the same money can't invest into? Or where do you actually get access to meet these founders and the founding teams? Yeah, so you definitely have to work on access. So this is not like public markets where you can open like a Robinhood account and buy any stock you want, right? So you definitely have to put some work in. Now, it's not like these secretive groups where nobody can access them. Uh, There is one other restriction, which is a lot of angel investing is reserved for accredited investors. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with like the SEC and their rules around the fact that it's a risky asset class. They only want, uh, their understanding of the situation is they only want people who can afford to take the risk to take it. So it is not accessible. There are ways now, I think, with the Jobs Act that came out in 2014 where people can do smaller checks. But for the most part, it is an asset class that is mostly accessible to accredited investors. Is that changing now? Because I've started to see like Kevin O'Leary as a company like Start Engine and some of these other ones. So now is it becoming more accessible for anyone to Uh, get into? Yeah, so I think the regulation is out there to allow it to become more accessible. Um, I am still not sure that the best companies go raise from retail investors, right? So what may happen when I'm not making a comment on the Start Engine, but you may end up seeing the companies going there who are not able to raise from you know, traditional VCs and angels, right? So there is a adverse selection risk uh, there. So it, that's one of the problems with this market is it's it's not really, it's not as accessible and transparent as the public markets. This is more sort of, you know, everybody sort of has their own like niche or corner that they operate in, right? Got it. So once you say you, say you put a check for some sort of founding team or company, how involved are you from there? Are you there to provide guidance and mentorship or is it kind of just like, all right, you guys do your own thing. See you later. It, it varies. Uh, a lot of it is just going to depend on the founder and whether I can help the founder, right? So, like, I I, uh, I sort of angel invest in in three buckets, right? So, there's, like, the bucket where I expect to make returns and where I can actually help the founder. So, it might be, like, you know, SaaS businesses or, or business model that I understand, like, pretty well. Uh, then there's the second bucket where I just invest in, like, killer founders, right? I don't really know what they're working on, but I just think they're smart people. So, whenever they start a company, I'll let them know. I was like, hey, I'll, I'll invest. Just let me know. And then the, the third bucket for me is what I call my learning bucket, which is I'll invest in a market I have no idea about. I fully expect to lose my capital, but you know I'll get to learn from the founder, right? As they're building the company, you know they send out regular updates. You know you can email back and forth with them. You get to learn uh, about a new industry, right? So that's sort of how I you know split up my angel investing. So in that third bucket, I probably can't add any value because I'm trying to learn from them. So I usually stay silent. And I'll try to help, you know, maybe introduce them to some other investors I know just to help them fundraise. Uh, but in the, you know, the first couple buckets, yeah, if I'm able to help them, I will, I'm, I'm usually available. I'll give them my, you know, phone number, email address. So if they, if you want to talk about go to market or you have an issue with hiring or firing or whatever it is, yeah, call me. Happy to help. And what, how does your check size vary between those three buckets? Is it pretty same across them all? Do you put more, like more per check in? Uh, it's a- roughly standard across them all. Yeah. So, uh, for the, and I think that's what I recommend to most angel investors to pick a check size and just stick with it. Because then if you have 30 companies, you, have, you haven't, you've bet the equal amount across all of them. What you don't want to do is bet randomly because then, like, let's say you bet $1,000 on the company that ends up blowing up, but only you bet $20,000 on the one that fails, your return is going to be lopsided, right? So just pick a, pick a number and just go uniform across the board. That way, you're 5% when it does make it. Exactly. Like it's, you make sure that they weren't like your tiny. Yeah. And, and, and then- you know, you. You can always weight the portfolio differently, but it's really hard at the pre-seed stage to have high conviction on on a deal, right? Because you just don't know. You just usually have a founding team. They have a product. They have a little bit of traction. It's not enough for you to 
for sure say this thing is going to be you know like the next billion dollar company and what does a kind of an exit look like for you as an angel investor is it when you raise more vc money is it when maybe an ipo and so far uh this has always been acquisitions for me okay. uh so that's been the exit uh i have a, i still have a couple of companies from my original like you know 10 years ago class that are still alive and doing well uh i don't know if they're gonna ipo or they're gonna get acquired but one of those things has to happen for me to see an exit from those two. So how do the terms work there? Like, do you get to choose when, whenever you want to take your money out or is there? How? So it's pretty much usually illiquid, right? So once you invest in it, you're probably not going to see your money for, for 10 years. That's assuming it works out. Really? So, okay. so if you're going to angel invest, you need to, whatever you put in, you should not need that cash for a long, long time. Uh, ideally, I would say in your mind, just write it off, right? Like once you invest, just assume that money is gone. Mm-hmm. And if it makes it way back to you, great. But if not, then you're fine. So what do you love about this so much? Because you mentioned like this isn't for everyone. It's only yeah. for people who really like working with those founding teams. What is it about you that gets you so excited? Yeah, I, I just I really like working with, you know, founders. I love the field of entrepreneurship. And for me personally, I really like the earliest stage of finding product market fit. Like that problem to me is most interesting. Um, like the scaling aspect, like obviously, you know, there's a lot of value there, but that's not an area that I personally find that intriguing. So that's why I operate at the pre-seed stage, right? Like I want to work with founders who are still trying to figure out what their product is and what the market needs. So yeah, for me, it's just a lot of, it's a, an area that I really enjoy. So that's why I do it. How often do you invest? Are you investing like a couple times a year? Are you investing? So the last couple of years, I've probably averaged about six to eight deals a year. So maybe one every two months, something like that. But I mean, sometimes I can do three in a month and like do nothing for. for and how four many do you right? see before you'll make an investment? Like, oh, quite a lot. Like, I, I mean, depending on how you define C, like, if it's like a slide deck that gets to me, probably hundreds. If it's like the first, do I take a call with the founder? Then that's probably like, you know, I'll probably see like fifty or sixty of those in a year, and then maybe I'll invest in like you know, six to eight of them, right? So if you have to quantify some of that, what you look for, how would you define that? Because you said you, the, one of the main things you look for is founder market fit, right? What makes it a founder a good one? Yeah, there's a oh, lot of qualitative aspects here, which... Try and define it as best as you can. Yeah, so the, the first I'm looking for is definitely sort of like knowledge of the market. Like how well do they understand the market, right? Like how well do they understand all the different players in the market, the customers, the competition, uh, even things like, you know, go-to-market strategies. And so I'm just trying to get a sense of that. Sometimes you can get a sense of that just by looking at their background, right? So if it's somebody who's been in this industry for 20 years... And they've, you know, operated at different levels and different companies in the market. You can look at it and say, okay, yeah, this person probably knows the market pretty well, having spent two decades in there. Then after that, you get into basically just like this qualitative analysis piece, which is you're looking for for almost people who are like mission driven and who are not in it for like the quick quick buck, right? Because building a, a you know a business that is going to last was going to take you ten years or more. So you need someone who's willing to commit to building a company for 10 years, which is a huge grind. And then also to get through all the ups and downs of that. And especially at the early stages, it's mostly downs. There's not that many ups. Mm -hmm. Like the ups come much later on. So you're looking for someone who has the resilience and, you know, the the mental mindset to be able to to see that through. And what do you think about college founders? Where do you find yourself on on that? Do you invest in them very often or? Yeah, I, I... I tend to, I prefer to just look at the founder and then make the decision that they're right there. I try not to have like preconceived biases or, or notion. So I have invested in college founders. Uh, you know, 
I actually think college founders these days are probably far ahead of where we were in college. Uh, and, you know, I, and I think that's great. Uh, obviously, you know, some college founders are probably lacking in experience. And there may be some sense of, like, in college you learn a lot of theory, but for to build a business you have to put it into practice, right? So, like, who can make that leap of going from theory to practice? And also from having very defined problems. Like, you know, if you take a college course, you've got tests and... Like everything's sort of structured, right? Like you know when you're doing well, you know when you're not doing well. When you build a business, you don't get signals that clearly, right? So, mm-hmm. and you'll probably fail more often than you're used to failing in class. So, just those <laughs> things that you know, just adjusting to sort of what a building a business is and the more practical aspects. As long as you're able to do that, I think you can succeed. Do you think there's a bigger risk with investing into college students because they have Plan B of like I'm about to graduate and then I can have a job versus someone that's like so that's something you try to get at when you're talking to them, right? Like that's what I meant by like how mission driven are they? Are they going to be here for 10 years? So you're trying to get a sense of that. And if you get the sense that, Hey, they're happy to take a job then, and that's fine. Then maybe you just tell them to do that. And then that goes back back to actually an advice I would give anybody who wants to get into entrepreneurship. This is my personal advice. So, you know, take it or leave it. I would recommend only starting a business if you cannot see yourself doing something else. Right. So if you're in that state of mind, and and what I mean by that is if you're going to spend all your time on it, right? If you want to start a side hustle, by all means, like do it. But if you're planning to start a business that'll become your full-time, you know, obsession for the next 10 years, only do it if you literally cannot see yourself doing something else, right? Then like, you know, welcome to the club. Otherwise, probably best to sit it out. Because if you leave your leave yourself a door or a way out, when things get tough, <clears throat> you will probably take it. So how would you define the difference between a side hustle and a business in that case? Uh, just depending on the amount of time you put into it. But side hustles can turn into full businesses, by the way. So you may start something as a side hustle and that starts to take off and then you basically quit your job and move on to that. So there's <clears> nothing <throat> wrong with starting a side hustle. What I mean by that is, you know, for a side hustle, you may spend 10 hours a week on it. For a business, and especially if you're trying to build like the next billion dollar business, you probably need to spend 80 hours a week on it, right? So that's sort of the difference that, that I'm looking for. So I want to ask you another question. I know it's kind of hard to define the question I asked you earlier about like, qualities you look for because a lot of that is qualitative right but when you say you get like hundreds of pitch decks and things like that how about the opposite what is something you immediately know that's like a red flag or something that you try and look for that they they don't have maybe when you're looking at a a founder or just a pitch deck or something like that uh yeah so i mean i usually eliminate so my first set of filters is just eliminating stuff that is not in like a sector that i'm either personally interested in or i don't want to learn about right so because there are sectors i don't know that i invest in so some things that I like automatically will avoid is like a lot of direct-to-consumer stuff. So like, I'm not interested in investing in the next Facebook or Snapchat. It's not my area of interest. So that's like my first filter. And at that point, I'm not even looking at the founder. I'm just saying not a sector I want. So I push it off to the side. Uh, beyond that, I, the second filter I'll apply is the will it scale, right? So I see a lot of like slide decks for um, like SaaS businesses, which I think can be really good businesses, but a lot of them are not venture scale, right? So that'll be my second filter to say, uh, and even though the founder will claim, you know, we can get to hundred million, whatever in, in revenue in like five years, like, especially if it's SMB SaaS, I know that having built a company there, like it's really hard to even get to like 10 million in five years, let alone hundred million in five years. How do you know if it's venture backed like capability or not? So, so certain business models in cer- certain markets will lend themselves well to, to big scale. Right. So, Either the product needs to have some sort of like, you know, like loop in it for growth. So like there's this whole movement around product-led growth. So like something, has either that has to be there 
like what I'm looking for is you don't need to have to go hire like 500 people to like really grow this into like uh like if if you're gonna be a business that has to burn 10 million to make a million, it's probably not gonna be venture scale anymore. It what, used to be a few years ago, but not anymore. What is product led growth? Uh, that's one where basically it's sort of your product has these qualities that bring more people to it. So for example, I think Figma would be one where right? where you would build a design, but then you would invite your team to give you feedback or your clients to give you feedback. And then they would invite their team and it just kind of like grows from like a, almost like a social media type thing, except it's happening in a, like a work product as opposed to, you know, something going viral on, on TikTok or so Snapchat. Do you think a business like yours, like loyalty could be turned into a product led growth company? Is there it would f- be very hard. Very hard. Right. Cause like the way small business owners work is you just kind of sell them one after the other. So there really aren't any loops, which is why I don't think those businesses are venture scale. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't build them because you could build a solid business for yourself where you own all of it. And like, there's nothing wrong with that, right? So not every founder has to go build a venture scale business. So what are some of the qualities of the people that you've seen as founders in your portfolio that are kind of across multiple people that you say, like, these are qualities that are beneficial to becoming a founder or being good as an entrepreneur or succeeding? So they're usually, like, they're really good. Uh, communicators or storytellers and that's how you figure out that they know their market well because you can ask them questions and they'll give you insights that even like you think about it and you're like oh yeah that's actually really smart so this person has spent a lot of time like thinking through that Uh, and then they obviously have the other qualities we talked about like resilience and the willingness to build a business for for a long period of time so those are usually like the the things that i'm looking for in the earliest stages and what are some of the things that you think helped you succeed that you have whether you built them through scale acquisition or you just had them internally from maybe growing up, what are some of the things you think helped you succeed? Yeah. Um, so I think one was since I was a kid, like I always had a, like a lot of natural curiosity. So I think that's something that was innate, which I think was super helpful. So I find a lot of stuff interesting. I, I love to learn. So I'll always be learning something new. Uh, and sometimes I'll go down like random rabbit holes where maybe it's, you know, it's not useful right then and there, but maybe I can use it later. Uh, the other stuff that's like really helped me, uh, and this is probably pretty popular with entrepreneurs these days is, uh, like, you know, practicing stoic philosophy, right? So the basic concepts of, you know, like, uh, whenever you're confronted with a situation, just focus on what you can do about it instead of worrying about all the things that have gone wrong. Right. So keeping the right perspective, taking the actions and then sort of, you know, dealing with whatever fallout comes from that. Right. And then just start repeating the process over and over again. So I found that to be, especially as an entrepreneur, super helpful because things go wrong all the time. And if you get bogged down by everything that's going wrong, you don't focus on what you can do to fix it, right? So that for me has been another like, you know, big, but that took a lot of practice to get there, right? Like it took a lot of like, you know, things going wrong and then like reacting the wrong way first and then learning to react the right way. And over time, I got better at it. Where do you th- where did where you get that from? Was that like a Tim Ferriss type thing? That uh, I yeah, I think the other guy Ryan Holiday. I think. Yeah, Ryan Holiday. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it was from there, and then also <laughs> when I was at Intuit, I met uh, like so he's actually a, a mentor for me now, the VP of Engineering for my division, and he was big into like Zen and Buddhist philosophy, so I sort of started to get pointed in that direction by him, right? So uh, I think it was a combination of him and you know some of the authors and books that I, I came across. That's incredible. We've actually done a few podcasts on stoicism, so that's cool that you relate to that. Yeah. So what do you do now like with your free time? Because a lot of the stuff that you're doing, you said, is relatively passive. So how do you spend your days? 
Yeah, so in a weird way, all my time is free time. And then <laughs> I also don't have any free time. So the, the, <laughs> the way it works is like I have these passive businesses that each take up 10, 15 hours and I have like four or five of them, right? So I'll still get to that 60, 70, 80 hours a week type thing. Uh, but a bit more energized because I'm not just like focused on you know one thing the whole time. So I get a context switch, which for me, I think as a, my personality works better. I, I do also have a bit of like, I think ADD or whatever else. So I'll, I'll get distracted. So it's good for me to have four different businesses where if something bores me, I'll go switch to the next one. And also a lot of these things are no longer like time pressure. So if I don't get something, get to something this week, I'll get to it next week, right? So that's great. Uh, I, you know, read a bunch. Like that's another thing I do. And uh, I've been also, one other thing I do is like just you know, public market investing is something that I've always fancied myself a stock picker. So I'm trying to put myself to the test and see if, you know, I like to think I could be like Buffett or Munger. Let's see if I actually can. <laughs> so that's another area where I'm spending a lot of time just like learning about that, uh, you know, and just getting better at, at, at that aspect as well. So what drives you now? Like what motivates you to keep on running these four different businesses? If you now have that time freedom and financial freedom, why keep going? Or what are you? Yeah, it's, to it get goes towards? back to the curiosity thing. I'm just learning all the time. Right. So with angel investing, I'm talking to a lot of interesting founders, uh, other angel investors, constant learning. Public markets, same thing, like constant learning. Uh, the passive businesses, you still learn some stuff there, but they also like, you know, if you keep the lights on, right? You got cash coming in, you can like live your life. Uh, but for the most part, it's definitely curiosity. Like that's sort of the driving force. You got rid of social media, you said earlier today as well, right? What was the yeah. decision behind that? Yeah, I got rid of that about a decade ago, I think. And it was just, it was too noisy. Like I didn't see any value from it. And that's why I got rid of it. Uh, the other thing too is just the incentive structure in social media. So there, for example, we talk about like public market investing. There's a lot of like finance gurus and investors on Twitter, <laughs> but the incentive structure there is you have to share content that is retweetable or goes viral, right? So you actually don't share actual information. You share stuff that can be shared. Exactly. So I prefer going back to, I actually read like textbooks now, like economics textbooks or something, mainly because I just want to go back to the source material and understand and not like somebody's like, you know, viral chart of something that everybody's sharing on Twitter, which could very well be wrong. Exactly. I mean, Jacob and I have talked about this plenty before. Like if you're trying to work out in the gym, I mean, if you stick to the basics, like bench, squat, deadlift, whatever those basics are, that'll be good enough. Right. But in order to get clicks and views on YouTube, you have to tell people, oh, there's this new exercise where you yep. do this crazy like one arm, uh, like pistol squat, like all kinds of stuff like that. Right. Because <laughs> sure. that's how you get yeah. views and clicks. So you're absolutely right about that. That's cool that you got into reading textbooks. Yeah, it's a, I think Munger has a quote, which is, show me the uh, incentives, I'll show you the outcome. Yeah. So if you look at the incentives of social media, like the outcome is not surprising, right? Like you have to, content has to go viral. So it's not that, like you could share actual knowledge, which will be boring and won't go viral, or you can share something, as you said, crazy looking that just goes viral. <laughs> so what are some of the, the books that you have taken the most from or have changed your perspective the most? Yeah, so I think Rohan knows this one. So uh, Make Your Bed, well, I think was a really good mm -hmm. one. There, there's like some stoic uh, aspects to it. The, the weird thing is the one thing I don't do from that book is I don't make my bed. <laughs> but, uh, other than that, like every those lessons have been good. Uh, the Daily Stoic was another one that was pretty good. Uh, ben Horowitz, uh, Hard Thing About Hard Things. Yep. Right? I think that that's a good book for founders. Um, there's got to be a lot of other ones. Like I've, I've read books and, you know, uh, I've also had an interest in like psychology. So books by you know, Daniel Kahneman or Steven Pinker. Uh, 
Dan O'Reilly. I think there's a bunch of these behavioral economics books. Those are great. Uh, and then just some like old school, you know, just grab like an economics textbook. I don't remember the name of it, but, you mm-hmm. know, grab it and read those. Do you yeah. read fiction books? Uh, I used to, and then I stopped and I'm like beginning to restart again. Do you think I, there's any value to that? I think so. Yeah. Because for a while I thought like there isn't, but I do think it's, because if you actually look at, um, I think Asimov, right? Like a lot of his books, in a weird way, like he predicted a lot of the stuff, which was kind of crazy if you think about it, right? Like uh, AI and all the problems that we're grappling with and his three laws of uh, robotics, which people still talk about, even though it was a science fiction writer, like actual engineers are looking at that and saying, hey, we may want to like incorporate Asimov's three laws of robotics into into our stuff. So I, I do think there's a benefit to it because uh, I think it opens up like, you know, creativity and possibilities. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You brought up uh, <clears throat> Admiral McRaven's Make Your Bed, and he's actually from Austin. You should be the chancellor. So what, what brought you to Austin here? Oh, I was in uh, Denver before this uh, for my company, and you know, I just wanted to move out of Denver. So Austin seemed like a Denver-like city, but with a slightly different vibe that was more mine. That's pretty much why I, I moved. Yeah, so I've heard like lots of people from California and the Bay kind of moving out to Austin. Yeah. Do you recommend young founders or entrepreneurs to come out here? Sure, as long as you can deal with the heat. <laughs> Is there value to proximity to like other people like like that? Like if you're a founder and you want to be so, in... I, I think there is to a certain point, right? Because uh, I do think you can learn a lot from each other. But also if you're building a company, like 99% of the time you should be focused on your business. So like if you're going to come here and spend 20 hours a week networking when you should be building your business, then yeah, maybe that's a distraction, right? So I, there is value in proximity, but you just have to leverage that the right way. Like you don't want to come here and stop focusing on your business and just do parties and events all the time, right? Yeah. Well, with that, I think we say this a lot, but podcasts can be a great way to like gather information. The issue is you're cooking while you're listening, you're going to the gym, you're driving, and it's really easy for a podcast to go in one ear, out the other. Absolutely. And you'd not really take anything from it. Um, so from everything we've talked about today, what is one thing that you would want to leave a listener of this podcast? Maybe they're in college, just getting out of college. What is something that they can actually do that will in some way material affect their life in a positive way um, from this podcast and the things like we talked about? Yeah, so especially if you're talking about people are fresh out of college, I would tell them to just like, you know, try a bunch of different things. Right. Uh, Cause for me personally, what I thought I was going to turn into when I come out of college and where I am today are like, not really you know, where I thought I would be, but it's almost like that, you know, Steve Jobs quote again, right. It's like take a step and then it'll make sense connecting backwards. But now when you do take the step, like do productive things, right. What I mean by that is, you know, I'm not saying let's go out and like, you know, party all the time or go, backpacking through Europe with, with no goals, right? So it's just make sure you're, whatever you do, whatever you try, there is like a you know, reason or productive purpose behind it, right? So that that's pretty much the only other caveat I would add, but try, experiment, try a bunch of stuff. Cool. Thank you, Diraj. That was actually lots of nuggets of wisdom that you dropped and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Take care. See ya.